0: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: Hello and welcome to this La Liga Lowdown bonus podcast looking ahead to the Europa League match between Zenit and Petersburg. And Rael Betis. I'm joined here by Richard David Pike, a European football writer, lover, and expert on all things Russian football. He's a big fan of La Liga, too. So he's the perfect man to get the take on Betis against Zenit. Richard, welcome. Um, First of all, uh, talk us a little bit about yourself.
2: Good morning, Matt. Yeah, first and foremost, um, I'd like to thank you, Matt, for inviting me on for this uh, collaboration. Um, I'm a huge listener to La Liga Lowdown in my spare time. Uh, and as you can guess from that, I'm a huge lover of Spanish football too and La Liga. Um, I've been to a number of Spanish football stadiums myself during the years, you know, La Romareda in Zaragoza, um, Anoeta in San Sebastian. And of course, the focus of this collaboration today in the shape of the Estadio Benito Villamarin. Um, 2012, I went there, actually. Uh, probably 2002, 2003 was my first season watching La Liga, actually. Quite a famous one as um, the Real Galacticos team went on to win La Liga and agonisingly, Real Sociedad, having led the league nearly all season long, just missed out by a point in the end, I think. So it was a great season to get me hooked on Spanish football and I've, I've just been a brilliantly avid viewer ever since, you could say. And and yeah, just been really enjoying doing the spaces for breaking the lines on European football recently, lover of all things outside the big five leagues and La Liga and yeah, just and the three European competitions as
1: well. That's a packed schedule you've got there. So um, we'll try and keep it as brief as we can. But uh, first of all, on Zenit St. Petersburg, it's been, uh, they're the Russian champions, of course. They're just coming off their winter break. But um, how would you say their their last kind of few years has gone? So, yeah, on to Zenit, Matt. It's been, um, let's say,
2: an underwhelming last couple of seasons in European competition for Zenit, I would say, since the highs of making the Europa League quarterfinals back in 2015 were obviously severe stop them. They stop everybody in the Europa League. And then, you know, the Champions League round of 16 back in 2016. Um, the coach Sergei Simak was appointed back in 2018 following a dismal sole season in charge of Zenit by Roberto Mancini back in 2017-18, a season where Zenit st- finished a staggering fifth in the Russian Premier League, uh, you know, barely believable by their dominant situation the last few for campaigns domestically. Uh, since Samak took charge of Zenit, they've won three straight Russian titles and are going for a fourth straight title in May. They're currently two points clear of second place Dinamo Moscow in the standings as you know, the league's going to resume in two weeks time after the winter break. I think whilst Samak, like any coach who wins a league title, deserves absolute credit for that performance because it's obviously never easy to win a league title I do think he has been aided by the fact that Zenit are the biggest budgeted club in Russia. Uh, this has led to what you might say was. An increased scrutiny on Zenit's performances in European competition. It's a little bit like that with, I would say, RB Salzburg in, in Austria recent seasons. It's mm. fair to say in this regard that Semak was under pressure going into this season, and it was poor performances in European competition over the last few years that's led to this pressure. Though it must be stressed, Zenit are not alone amongst Russian clubs in general in this regard. You know, the, the league's representatives as a whole have underperformed in European competition the last three or four seasons. You know, the net result will be a big coefficient drop come the start of the 2003. 2003- 2023-24 European club competitions. Um, last season, you know Zenit exited the Champions League of a win per, you know, they only got one point from the six games in a group. You would say on paper was not easy with Dortmund, Lazio and Club Rouge, but also one that lacked <laughs> a major European force you know at Real Madrid a Man, United, a Man City a Bayern Munich a Liverpool so it lacked one of those teams you know one point from this group was a dismal showing. Zenit you know came rock bottom of the group and were eliminated from Europe altogether this season's been better though and considerably so Zenit got five points in the Champions League group finishing third and qualifying for the Europa League post Christmas um, not only were the results better from Zenit's perspective but also some of the performances too you know the St Petersburg outfit only lost one nil away to defending European champions Chelsea on match day one a very gallant and respected performance it was from them too and they were also lucky to lose 1-0 at home to Juventus on match day three and they got a good free free draw with
1: Chelsea on match day six of the group stage in St Petersburg Incredible Galato to tie that game in the last minute wasn't it? I remember that one um, denied Chelsea top spot in that group so uh, could have had an impact on the uh, their title defence as you say yeah, very goal. respectable goal. Oh, fantastic <laughs> goal very respectable performance then from them this season in Europe but you touched on the, the kind of relative drop in Russian football in the European competitions. We've heard as well from uh, Sasha Gurionov over on the Totally Show a lot about this. He's uh, quite damning of the standard of Russian football right now. So why? What, what are the reasons for that, would you say? Is it financial? Is it just uh, tactical? Is it the players? What's the reason for this kind of drop in recent years? Yeah, I would say with, with Russian football, there's a couple of factors. I would say the coaching
2: has not been great over the last few years. Um, I think a lot of Russian clubs are now starting to turn to foreign coaches because I think the quality of the domestic coaches really is not high. Um, I would say probably there's also an element of complacency, which has possibly crept in as well. You know, leagues like Belgium and Austria are improving a lot. You know, uh, we've seen that in the recent coefficient jump. Uh, you know, when those two leagues are ahead of Russia now, and Russia, I think, is definitely on the way down, as we've, if we've said. Um, this Although this season has been a little bit better in the last couple, although it couldn't really get much worse, given how <laughs> bad the last couple of seasons were. Um, and yeah, I would probably say as well, a big factor in this is, I think, the foreign player limit too. You know, Russian Premier League clubs are only allowed eight foreign players in the entirety of their squad. So it's a very restrictive rule. It doesn't really help Russian football at all. There is talk of them changing it, possibly stretching it to 12 or 13. We've heard a variety of different um, things that have been mooted been on that point. But yeah, you can imagine that you have to get your recruitment of your eight foreign players absolutely spot on. And then you have to rely on a core of ex. You know, Russian players to come in for weekend games or against teams lower down the table as well. So it is just a massively restrictive thing. And, you know, it it doesn't help Russian football, I think. You know, there should be no limit, in my opinion. You know, the limit should be completely abolished. But yeah, I would say it's probably a combination of those those three factors. Um, Mentality, probably as well. You know, um, that probably ties into the complacency factor too. I'll probably say those are probably the main factors, really, what has really left Russian football in this difficult state that it finds itself in at the moment. Zenit are definitely the best team in Russian football at the moment without a shadow of a doubt. And Even Dave underperformed massively in Europe recently.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, it's an interesting one because for, for quite a while the Russian sides were very strong in Europe um, and even reaching you know finals and, and, and winning competitions but much less so these days. With the current Zenit iteration then who would you say are their key players? Who are the ones that Betis fans need to be watching out for? I would say
2: the key players for Zenit are the following. Uh, First up, I would say it's going to be the new major winter window signing, uh, 20-year-old Brazilian striker Yuri Alberto, who was signed from SC International and the Brasil Serie A, where he netted, I think, 13 goals last season from the port for the Porto Alegre outfit. Um, he joined Zenit in place of Sardar Asmund, who, who was the star, one of the star men, the key Iranian striker. He was for so long an integral part of the free title winning success, but he recently joined Bayer Leverkusen in January. They did the deal for him to go in the summer, but then Zenit decided to cash in there and get some money for him and bring the Uri Alberto deal forward. So um, I confess I've never actually seen Alberto play, but you know he's going to be, he, they paid big money for him. So he's going to be a key player for Zenit going forward. Um, and he's, he's going to have to fill big shoes in the shape of of someone so key, such as Sardar um, strength of I would say the strength of Zenit's side is their midfield. There's two key players here in the shape of Colombian uh, Wilmar Barrios and Brazilian Wendell. Uh, Barrios is the defensive midfielder of this Zenit team. You know, he's the shield in front of the defensive flying. He's one of the best players in the entire Russian Premier League. And I, personally, I'm astonished after three years playing in Russia that no one has come in to sign um, the Colombian International for the top five league. I think he's more than good enough to play for a decent sized club in these leagues as well. He's composed when dispossessing opponents, you know, not rash at all. He doesn't dive into tackles often and can get attacking and get attacking moves going too. Uh, Wendell, I would say, is the box-to-box player in Zenit's midfield. He's the the player who, whilst carrying out defensive responsibilities also from time to time, he's what you might call nowadays the transition player in midfield. You know, the player who can transform Zenit from defence to offence. Technically, he's quite good. Um... And, you know, he's been, you know, a good, consistent performer for Zenit since signing for the club in the summer of 2020 from Sporting Club de Portugal. However, the most transformative signing that Zenit have made in recent times was the big name acquisition last summer, um, Claudio Luis Rodriguez-Paris Leonel or Claudinho, as he's commonly known as. Uh, the 25-year-old Brazilian signed from Zenit from Red Bull Bragantino in, in his homeland immediately after the Tokyo 2020 Olympic Games, where you know he won a gold medal with Brazils on the 23s. Uh, Claudinho won the um, 2020 Brazil Player of the Year award, and he's the creative player in Zenit's team. He's been a transformative signing in so many ways. Before he arrived, I would say Zenit played a more a more rigid 4-4-2 formation, and maybe a more direct star with more long balls, often hit to target forward Artem Dzyuba up front. Admittedly, whilst this also worked in the Russian Premier League, often worked in Russian Premier League, you fought when Zenit did this in Europe against a higher caliber opposition, especially last season, they often looked. It often looked a bit outdated. You know, teams were dealing with it quite comfortably. I think signing Claudinho changed everything, though. It's allowed Zenit to switch to what looks like a 4-3-2-1 at times, with Claudinho as one of the two behind the main striker. So, yeah, Claudinho, he plays in the half spaces. He doesn't hug the touchline, but he's not positioned dead central, too. And, you know, he's got a fantastic shot on him from distance as well. I remember one goal he scored in the league, which was an absolute belter. It was um, from wide, just outside of the of the penalty zone. It was just a looping shot which went straight over the keeper really good goal what I can remember vividly from the league after two three months away in the break and then of course finally there is a La Liga link here in the shape of former Barca man uh, Malcolm who is the other member of the two normally behind the main striker in its formation Malcolm's time in Russia has been a little bit frustrating but he's been a bit unlucky it's been a bit like Eden Hazard at Real Madrid, he, he, we haven't really seen him a lot because he's been injured. Um, he's, he's suffered a lot from frequent injuries. When he has been fit, he, he has shown his class on occasion. You know, that class that led to Barcelona buying him after impressing league Gun for Bordeaux.
1: Yeah, well, anyone with Ino in their name is always going to be one to watch. And, of course, yeah, you mentioned Malcom. La Liga fans will know him pretty well. Um, he was a kind of, as you say, big money move that came out of nowhere because he's on, on his way to Rome and then uh, ended up at Camp Now for a very brief period of time. <laughs> well, that was Malcolm and now this is the middle. It's time for a quick break, but join us again in part two, where we look at some of the areas that Betis could exploit Zenit. And Richard also gives us his prediction for the outcome of this tie. Don't go away.
0: you have an airbnb your home might be worth more than you think find out how much at airbnb.com
1: host welcome back to this bonus la liga lowdown pod on Zenit against Betis in the Europa League. So Richard, how about the weaknesses? Where can Betis look to exploit Zenit? I know many um, uh, people that don't know Zenit too well will look at that back line and see Dan Lovren and uh, many Liverpool fans will be cringing, thinking, oh no, not Dan Lovren. But is, how is he in this team? Is he one of the pillars or is he still a bit of a liability?
2: Uh, just quickly on Lobberon, yeah, I'd say he's, um, I'd still say he's a, normally a solid defender for them. But as you know, I've been a Liverpool fan like yourself, you will know that he's got the mistakes in him and those have still not crept away. I, I, I sent you that video clip of that <laughs> <laughs> hilarious home goal he scored against um, Spartak, I think it was last, yeah, last season, just before the winter break. Yeah, he's still got that mistake in him every now and again. So, but in general, he's been okay for Zenit. he's been solid enough, you know, since signing. Um, just a couple of other little things, before go on. so tactically this season I think Semak has evolved, as I said he's gone from 4-4-2 in past seasons and, and this place is either a 4-3-2-1 formation or sometimes even Zenit have tried a 3-4-2-1, I think they played that against Chelsea both times this season because Chelsea obviously operate a, um, a back three and Wilma Barrios, the normal defensive midfielder in the four-man defence, he dropped in to form a back three in that, in that game against Chelsea. Um, Just quickly on the strengths of Zenit, as I said, midfield, definitely the strength of Zenit with Barrios, Wendell and Claudinho all excelling normally in their roles. Um, You know, maybe you could argue as well that Zenit do have the advantage of having played a higher calibre of opponent than Betis in Europe this season too, in the shape of Chelsea and Juventus. So they will will respect Betis, but probably not fear them in that aspect, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously, Betis are one of the the largest clubs in Spanish football outside of the big three, um, I would say. Uh, And one of the strengths Zenit has had, I mean, I couldn't make this argument, not having played in two months has enabled them to have a rest. Um, They've not had the hectic schedules of teams in the Western European leagues. You know, the Russian Premier League only returns in the last um, weekend of February after even the second leg of this tie. As you know, just the meteorological conditions in Russia just do not allow you to play in January, nearly all of February, as you can imagine. Um, Weaknesses of Zenit. I'd say goalkeepers an issue. Um, there's talk that Zenit's first choice goalkeeper Stanislav Kritchuk is gonna miss both games against Betis. Um, I wouldn't say he's one of the best goalkeepers in Russia, best free goalkeepers in Russia, I'd say he's a decent level. You know, not spectacular, but a decent level you would say. But he's definitely superior to the other potential options for Zenit in that position, who are Mikhail Kurzakov, who of course is famously younger brother of former Soviet striker Alexander. Uh, he's 35 now and um and then 19-year-old academy academy product, Daniel Olievski, who, if he was to play, he'd be making his debut at senior level for Zenit. So I think Kritschuk's absence is a blow. Um, yeah, I've mentioned Dan Lovren as well. You know, he, he's prone to the odd mistake, as we know. Um, so, yeah, that's probably something for um, either William Jose or Boya Iglesias from, um, from Betis to try and take advantage of. I'd probably say the right sided fullback position as well has not been as strong. You know, Douglas Santos on the left side fullback, he's one of the other consistent performers, the Brazilian. He's he's in every game, seven to eight out of 10 rating player. But the right fullback role, they've alternated lately between Vyacheslav Karavaev and Alexis Sutormin in that position. Karavaev had a good start to his Zenit career in the first 12 months after he signed, but stagnated a little bit over the last 12 months, I would say. And Sutomin is normally a winger. So. Either of those two options, I think, Sorry, I bet he could have some joy on that side. Um, They're not bad players, but again, they're not as as good as Douglas Santos or other areas of the team. And I'd probably say final weakness for Zenit that I would note is, yes, they've had two months away from competitive games and are fresh, but the caveat of that is they're going to be rusty as well. You know, this is always a factor for Russian, other Eastern European countries. teams balkan and scandinavian teams who are still in european competition after christmas and they come against the side from either league with either no winter break or very short when you know all those countries and regions i mentioned either operate a spring to autumn calendar like sweden or norway or they have a month or longer winter break so they're always vulnerable in this stage of european competition due to rustiness you know it's it's, it's that it's that switch instantly from playing low tempo friendlies in warm weather climates to being thrust straight into um Competitive, high tempo and high intensity ties. You know, Moulder had a similar issue last season when they played Granada in the Europa League round of sixteen, as the Norwegian league only started in April. So yeah, I think that's something that you know um, betters can look to exploit.
1: Yeah, without doubt, it's always one of those things that people discuss, isn't it? The winter break and how you know the rest factor versus the lack of match sharpness and and practice. But like you say, these friendlies that have uh, been introduced do help in some way. They've just been playing the Atlantic Cup. Uh, against the likes of Michelin, um a uh, Copenhagen and Bronby. And they got on pretty well, two wins and a draw um in the last three. So they're they decent Nick. Um but as you say, it's it's a it's another level playing better, isn't it? Um interestingly, Manuel Pellegrini has played Zenit before. He was there in he's never won in the stadium though at in St Petersburg. He was there with Villarreal back in two thousand seven eight. Um and they lost 1-0. It was a goal from, uh, I don't know if you remember, Pavel Pobrebniak, of course. And Arshavin I was do. in the team
2: too. Yeah, I remember following, rushing, rushing, uh, following Zenit quite heavily during that season because that was probably their golden team, wasn't it? They had yeah. um, Arshavin, Pobrevniak, Zaryanov in midfield. Um, yeah, uh, Timur Shuk as well. They had
1: a really great side back then, Zenit. And the second time Pellegrini has visited them was with Malaga. Uh, and that was a draw. And Wanley, of course, also played in that Malaga side. So, so him and Wanley will both know a little bit about <laughs> what it's like to play against Zenit. Um, so, finally, then let's let's have a score prediction for for this tie. Do you think Zenit have have a chance? How highly would you rate their their chances of qualification?
2: I think they could have. There was ties that they could have got in this round, which might have been a little bit more difficult than Betis, like. Uh, Napoli and Lazio are two sides. That's all. Lazio are similar level to Betis. Napoli probably a bit higher than Betis. <laughs> so you know, you could argue the draw wasn't the worst they could have got, but it's definitely one of the toughest that they could have got. Isn't it, you know, I would, you know, the, their preference would been someone like Adina Mozag, or um, or a Braga, someone like that. But Betis is that next level above. So it was one of the toughest ties they could have got. Um, It's going to be difficult for them, I think. I think Betis will start as the favourites. I know they've had a little bit of a wobble recently in La Liga. Um, It will be interesting to see, intriguingly, because they're still in pre-cup competitions. Mm -hmm. Sorry, pre-competitions, fighting in pre-competitions. It'll be interesting to see what Betis is, um, you know, are they going to have the opposite effect to Zenit? Maybe Zenit might be a bit rusty. Maybe Betis might be a little bit tired. I know, you know, they had the Copa del Rey recently match against Rayo Vallecano. Um, Regarding Zenit, the first leg is absolutely crucial in St Petersburg. I think to have any chance of going through, they've got to win that first leg. Uh, um, I think it's going to be very, very difficult in the Benito Villa Marine, especially when they've not played um, a competitive match in two months. If they go there trailing or level on level terms, then I think it's going to be, Betis are definitely going to be favourites. Um, yeah, they've got to try and take advantage of that home leg and maybe another weakness of zenit has been away from home i think i was looking at this the other day they haven't won an away game since semak took charge in europe you know and some of those losses have come against the likes of uh dinamo minsk in his very first european game molder he didn't beat them away from home as well so whilst they're pretty they've been pretty decent at home especially when they've been in the europa league side of things hmm. and this season against malmo in the champions league they they they're weak away from home they didn't beat malmo in this season's champions league away from home so, yeah, they, they've got to try and take a lead to the Benito Villa Marine to have any chance. If I was going to say a prediction, I'm going for Betis to win this this tie over two legs. I think probably Zenit might get a draw out of the first leg, but I think Betis will beat them at the Villa Marine. Um, maybe a goal or two in it. I think mm. there might be a goal or two margin of victory over the two legs for, for Betis. Because um, I know they've been playing very well in the Liga recently, you know, they've got some classy operators in that side like Canales and Fekir, and they've got to keep tabs on those two players, especially, I think, it? But yeah, I think Betis will win over two legs, maybe by a goal or two margin.
1: Yeah, they're certainly, certainly the favourites, I think, for, for many people. They'll be hoping that Canales will overcome his Covid in time to play this game. But of course, they've still got the likes of, as you say, Fekir and Juanmi Bang in form. And of course, El Panda Borja Iglesias. Um, just a just a final little point, and you mentioned the difference between home and away. What effect do you think no away goals is going to have in this in this in this uh, tie, and in general in the in the competitions in Europe? I'm actually quite intrigued by it because I I,
2: I I'm I know there was a lot of criticism when the away goals rule was removed from European competition, um, but. It, it, you have to take it into context on all things. Yeah. You could make it, you could make the argument that that will make it harder to see more surprises in the future in European competition, because, you know, that away goal safety, net was always something, you know, if a small team is playing a larger team and they got the one, they win at home in the first leg and the second leg, they suddenly go a couple of goals behind, but then they score. Then they end up yeah. going through two to an aggregate, don't they? And that, that's often been a way of the small team upsetting the bigger team in now European competition. So obviously that's now been taken away. Um, I guess the flip side of that argument is, and I actually was in favour of the way goal being removed now, I think the flip side of that argument is sometimes we saw matches like, I remember Sporting versus Bayern in the Champions League a number of years ago, and I think it was that one where, I think in the second leg, Bayern just absolutely trounced. I think it was 8-0, and I think it was something ridiculous like 12-1 on aggregate or something. And, you know, Bayern won the first leg like, 4-1, and that was away from home. So, already, you know, the <laughs> the idea of sporting coming out yeah the idea of sporting coming out and attacking them at the start it just means game over so i think the away goal rule i don't think it's actually it might live and ties up a little bit because rather than the, the, the home team being fearful in the first leg of conceding the away goal that they might be inclined to attack a little bit more and you know it's not really changed much you know as i said in in those Sporting versus Bayern ties, I just mentioned briefly. Just, just then, Sporting probably went on the attack anyway, despite the away go, away goal being enforced because they have to make advantage of home home advantage in the first place because they're going to they're going to be under the kosher, the Alliance. So. I'm not actually that bothered about the away goals rule being scrapped I think you know it's a little bit of an archaic rule you know it's not like the 1950s or 60s now in, in European football where travelling sometimes took days between venues and you know football has changed a lot now you can get to and from venues in such quick, in much quicker time now um, so the away goals rule being scrapped I wasn't all that disappointed by um, but it will be interesting to see how it, it plays into effect of both teams in this tie um, obviously I think Zenit Away goals really in place, on not and this tie would have gone for the first leg, in because that they need to win that tie. You know, going to Seville, not having a lead is, is going to be very difficult. So, I think it, it, the approach of it might not have changed necessarily that much. I think they would have gone for it. So,
1: yeah, it's going to be fascinating to see how it all happens. So, uh, thank you very much, Richard. Uh, make sure you follow him on Twitter, Richard David Pike, and uh, Russian football news and breaking the lines as well. Uh, That's all for now. Uh, Look forward to the European Games. We'll see if Betis uh, can avoid any surprises against Zenit. But as you know now, you've got the full load down on the Russian outfit. So yeah, once again, thanks very much, Richard. And uh, we'll see you soon. Pleasure, Matt. Thank you.